This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 14th, 2012. I'm Caleb Brown. Our right to pursue exotic and often unhealthful delicacies has been under attack for some time. But should some government authority protect us from our bad decisions? Balin Linekin is head of Keep Food Legal, a group dedicated to ensuring that we keep our rights when it comes to food. In as broad a brush as possible, what is the problem with our ability to, in an open market, go and buy the kinds of foods that we want? Half of that is probably seen, that is, these public bans on various uh, products, certain ingredients. But there's got to be another half that is also unseen that just results in us not seeing things on shelves that we might like to see. What are the, what are the biggest problems from your perspective? Sure. Uh, subsidies uh, have been, uh, agricultural subsidies have been one of the big problems. Uh, the USDA has been, essentially it picks winners. You know, it, uh, it picks things like corn and soy that uh, should be overproduced by subsidies. And obviously that comes uh, at the expense of other things like you know, leafy greens that might suffer. And so there are environmental problems that come out of that. Uh, monocultures, which people like Michael Pollan have written about, um, and Mark Bittman and others in the New York Times. Although their solution is to subsidize other things rather than just to sort of wipe away the subsidy uh, slate, which seemingly uh, subsidies are, are under the gun and, and have uh, largely been uh, etched out of the farm bill as it's currently written, but it's been replaced with crop insurance which is really just subsidies by another name. As subsidies function, does that express itself in terms of uh, some preferable uh, product no longer being used in the things that we eat, such, for example, uh, cane sugar being replaced with uh, high-fructose corn syrup? Yep, that's that's a perfect example. Um, you know, the U.S. government subsidizes sugar and hence high-fructose corn syrup, which really, I think, results from an overabundance of, uh, of corn. I had long suspected, and I don't know if it's if it's true or not, that, that part of what makes those kinds of foods easy to subsidize is that they're easy to store. Like you don't see a lot of subsidies uh, specifically for fresh fruits and vegetables. You don't see a lot of direct subsidies, although there may be some land use subsidies that go into meat and uh, uh, production of other of meats and things like that. But those things don't store well. Uh, is that is that does that play a role at all? It's an interesting uh, point, not one I've thought about much. But I mean, there are other things that do store well uh, that perhaps uh, are not subsidized. I guess you know, legumes, dried beans, things like that, uh, stored well. But yeah, anything that you can, I guess, put in an elevator, a grain elevator, that sort of thing. Um, it makes sense that you have anything that fits in a silo, um, which is the sort of you know, I think American originated uh, storage space. I think that makes sense that uh, those things are subsidized. But I, I don't know whether the subsidies beget the storage or the storage begets the subsidies. Most people, uh, I think, roll their eyes when they hear about various restrictions on uh, like salt in, in foods or, or prohibitions on placing certain items on tables uh, in, in restaurants. Uh, but nonetheless, these types of regulations have currency. They're they're able to get through. They they get passed. Uh, and maybe it's a function of the kind of people I hang out with. But uh, I don't sense that there's a lot of public support uh, for those ideas. And yet there they are. Well, there's the uh, public health community, which has uh, you know at the sort of administrative law level, uh, I think uh, wields increasing power in this country in places like New York City, for example. Uh, the health department, it, you know, it hasn't, I can't think of a week 
in the last uh, five years, and I may be overstating the case slightly, uh, but where I haven't heard about some new proposed regulation, which often, as you point out, you know, because of low public support is sort of pulled back at the last minute or the New York City Public Health Department will pretend that, in fact, they never had this plan to restrict whatever food it is uh, that they you know, were considering restricting. Um, it probably is a function of, uh, of your friends that you don't find a lot of public support. I think there are people, uh, I don't think it's perhaps as wide as the public health community would argue it is, but um, there certainly is a segment of society that, uh, that thinks that uh, food should be restricted. I just think that it's a, a vocal minority as opposed to uh, uh, certainly the mainstream. You've talked and written a lot about food trucks as well. And of course, uh, getting to live in D.C. means that we have access to a lot of food trucks. It's a low-cost uh, entrepreneurial project for a lot of people who then go on to, to found uh, brick-and-mortar restaurants. Um, and yet there is this opposition. Uh, I think it's been muted recently in D.C., but in a lot of cities where brick-and-mortar shops are getting regulations passed to say, well, you can't locate your truck within 300 feet of me – and uh, my argument has always been, well, why don't you ban pizza delivery? Because that's, that's a very similar uh, project where I bring you food. I, come to f- I bring food to where you are rather than uh, you having to come into my shop. Is that uh, sort of where do we stand in general on that type of regulation in the United States and, and which side is winning? Well, um, the pizza delivery angle is a very good one. It's, uh, I have an op-ed, which I expect will probably be uh, published this week on the uh, regulatory scene in DC, and I do make the pizza delivery analogy. Um, I swear I wrote the op-ed before um, <laughs> hearing your example. But yeah, it's a UPS delivery van, same idea. They double park. Uh, you know, they, they actually are sort of creating uh, road blocks and hazards, whereas the food trucks you know, pay a parking meter and, and sit there. So the situation might be a little more tenuous in DC than then you paint it. There is a potential crackdown on uh, where trucks can park, uh, the creation of zones, for example. Um, it's not, uh, it's not a, a sure thing, but uh, certainly it's something that, that's worth fighting back against. As far as the regulations around the country, I was just in Chicago recently for a food truck conference, and uh, the regulations there uh, state that, A, you can't cook on a truck which presents a clear public health hazard if you have to you know, cook your food in the morning and then bring it out and serve it to people for, say, six hours. Um, and the other particularly onerous part of the regulations there is that uh, there are zones that you just cannot park in. Um, and if you look at a map, I think uh, the Institute for Justice has a map of the city with uh, sort of concentric circles around, and it's, uh, it's like a piece of Swiss cheese where it's only holes. Um, and it's it's unfortunate. There are other efforts. There uh, is some ongoing litigation in California uh, around restrictions there that, uh, based on the state constitution, are, are pretty clearly unconstitutional. And uh, some fights. I saw Atlanta today, actually. Um, the police began in, enforcing uh, an outdated regulation, a new regulation just passed that um, I think supersedes the enforcement. But... Uh, so Atlanta was, uh, as recently as yesterday, closing down a, a truck lot by uh, saying that the trucks didn't have a permit because every time they move, they need a new permit for wherever it is they have to park. So they have to go to the, you know, uh, the uh, regulatory agency every day to get a permit, which 
is uh, an impossibility, I think. Part of what has made food trucks so viable is social media. That is, they can they develop a fan base, they locate wherever they need to, wherever they sense they're going to do good business. And uh, in that sense, I guess technology is really challenging the, in, in some ways, the brick and mortar places that do lunch for the most part. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the, the sort of uh, flourishing of, of social media as a tool for uh, bringing us new ways of, of enjoying food uh, is actually a topic that uh, I'm teaching an undergraduate course at American University in the fall, which is booked already, um, which I'm proud of. Uh, it's called Food Ways 2.0, and in it I look at the ways that social media has been used to uh, establish these sort of entirely new ways of eating in America, and that includes food trucks, but it also includes underground restaurants, uh, pop-up restaurants, things that probably could not exist without at least uh, at, at this time, without uh, social media. Obviously, underground restaurants pose a regulatory problem for people who would like to uh, decide what, uh, how food is prepared and things like that. And, and you know, there are some uh, on, its, on their face, not bad arguments for why uh, some agency ought to be charged with that, with that task. The argument I hear often is, well, look, you're not allowed to go into a kitchen. Uh, as a customer, you don't go into a kitchen. Somebody should go into that kitchen. Uh, and make sure that solvents aren't being stored above uh, deep fryers, that sort right. of thing. What, what do you what do you think of that idea? That is this uh, idea of a central agency, a government agency that's charged with uh, making those kinds of determinations. Uh, well, I don't think it has to be a government agency. I mean, I think that uh, you know we have places like underwriters laboratories and publications like Consumer Reports that do a pretty whiz bang job of of telling us you know which uh, electronics and which cars and which blenders, and I guess that's an electronic, but, um, you know, what's safe, what's good, what's highly rated, um, and I think that that sort of uh, agency at the, you know, private agency at the local level, a certifying body could certainly uh, take that role. Now, you know, is the uh, city uh, health inspection sort of the worst thing in the world? No, it's not, um, and, you know, I think that some sort of inspection of uh, restaurants and, and perhaps of home kitchens uh, uh, is not uh, outside of the, the scope of government's powers. But I do think that, um, I guess, the, uh, just because regulation you know, must exist or has to exist in a certain area doesn't mean that it should be overly strict. It should be sort of the least restrictive means. Baylin Linekin is head of Keep Food Legal. You can learn more about regulation of food at our website, cato.org.